0: Let me encourage you if you would to take your Bibles and turn with me in them to the second chapter of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, first Corinthians chapter one. Now we have been preaching a series on the message of Christ crucified. This is the sixth and the last in that series tonight. You may recall that last time we were looking together at chapter one of First Corinthians, and now we come to chapter 2. This is verses 1 through 5. This is one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible, especially this passage. Hear the Word of God as it comes to us from 1st Corinthians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony or in some manuscripts, the mystery of God, with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and the power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God shall stand forever." If you would, seek with me the face of God and ask for his blessing upon the ministry of this, his holy and infallible word. Let us pray. O holy fathers, we bow in your presence. We are very conscious, O Lord, that unless you are pleased to attend the ministry of the word, this one would speak but in vain. And these, your dear people, would hear but in vain. And so we ask O oh God that you would pour out your spirit in copious measures upon us all upon speaker and people alike and lord that you would be pleased to help us to understand your word and that having understand your word we might obey it father speak to us now we ask in this hour and we plead this in Jesus name Amen. In Acts chapter 20, we find that the Apostle Paul, upon anticipation of his near departure, while bidding farewell there to the Ephesian elders, he could pronounce in no uncertain terms these words which we find in Acts chapter 20 and verse 26. Indeed, words which constitute Something of a vindication of some three years of ministry among them. He said, wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure of the blood of all men. And then he others another pronouncement on the heels of that, which in turn gives us the reason why he had this testimony born to his conscience. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And he tells us in that passage how specifically he had acquitted himself in this regard among the Ephesians. He says in verse 20 of Acts chapter 20 that he kept nothing back from them which was profitable, but taught them publicly from house to house testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. This, the apostle goes on to say, was the ministry which he received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Now, interestingly enough, we know according to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, in verses 5 through 8, that it was sometime during the course of the apostle's ministry at Ephesus that he sits down to write this epistle to the Corinthians, and he addressed himself in somewhat similar fashion to them as well. For in the language of his text, of our text, he could likewise say in retrospect of his ministry "...among them this same resolved, which is likewise his vindication of it. For I determined, or I decided, not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Among all the other things that he taught concerning the christian faith central to everything this was the pulse beat of the apostle's burden to publish abroad the news of his crucified lord and indeed on the basis of divine revelation and apostolic authority he declared demonstrating in customary fashion how that the old testament scriptures pointed in part and parcel, progressively and convergently, to that great redemptive event of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is, He preached unceasingly those great objective truths which cluster around the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of His vicarious substitutionary bloodletting, sin-bearing death on behalf of sinners as the only hope of sinners. Now what was the nature of the apostles' ultimate resolve to which I'm referring in my title and which we find in this passage. The apostle says, for I determined or I decided. The Greek word there is one of a judgment he has made. It's the word krino. The decision of the apostle as defined by our text must be, therefore, the determination by which we ourselves as ministers of the gospel must be possessed. There must be, as was true of the Apostle Paul, this very intentional, unrelenting restlessness to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in saying that, I think there can be no greater ambition in the heart of the true minister of Christ than to preach Christ in Him crucified and in retrospect of that message be able to say with the apostle, I am free or pure of the blood of men. As ministers of the gospel, we must be resolved to know him personally and intimately, even as we confess him openly and publicly. Jesus Christ and him crucified as the only object of our study or or the only object of our faith, and then the singular, comprehensive subject of our study. And I think we need to be careful that we don't ever drive a wedge between the two. It is tragic that there are some ministers who are true to the gospel, but it never has any practical application to their lives personally. That's why we must never drive this wedge between those two things. As with every other Christian, I think it's important that we should never forget that what Christ was to us on the birthday of our faith, He ever remains in the ongoing reality of our Christian experience. He does not change. He remains the same. And as it pertains to those who minister in the name of Christ, whether we are loved or admired or respected or liked or even ridiculed and cursed and hated, on the other hand, it is of little consequence in the end, so long as we know that we have discharged the debt that we owe to the God who saved us and who called us into the ministry. And that in that day, when we stand in the presence of God, we will not be guilty of the blood of men. And so there must be, as we see here in the Apostle Paul, this ultimate resolve to preach Christ and Him crucified. We must labor always to make Christ known as the one and only Savior of sinners, constantly pointing to Him in all the glory of His person and in all the perfection and sufficiency of His work on behalf of sinners. Always declaring, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away or bears away the sin of the world. Moreover, if Christians are to grow in grace, if Christians are to be brought to maturity in their faith, it will be to the extent that we as ministers of the gospel plumb with them this mystery more and more in its depth, in its breadth, and in its height. The people of God do not grow as they move on from the cross of Christ, but they grow in grace as they draw nearer to the cross of Christ. Now, as we saw last time in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 1, the Lord our God, through the hand of his apostle, states there very clearly to us his design of redemptive mercy, which is calculated, you'll notice, he says there, to this end or purpose that he might destroy the wisdom of the wise and to bring the so-called discernment of the discerning to nothing. Verse 20, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And Paul expresses this, you'll notice, in conjunction with a proclamation of the gospel, which is the declaration of God's purpose, plan, and ongoing application of restoring redemptive grace. But in that purposed, planned, and ongoing operation, Of redemptive grace, God purposes not only to expose the foolishness of the wisdom of the world, but He is determined at the same time to secure for Himself unrivaled praise for that redemption. And the apostle picks up that particular theme in chapter 1 at verse 26 by reminding the Corinthians to look in the mirror, as it were, and consider what kind of people God has called. He says, not many wise according to the flesh, not many noble, not many mighty, or not many noble." God's elective grace then has this object in view. Negatively stated, verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Positively stated that if there is to be any room for boasting whatsoever or glorying, verse 31, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Now, it is my conviction that verses 1 through 5 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 are a God-breathed and therefore a God-revealed declaration of precisely the kind of minister who is an instrument in the hands of God to accomplish that twofold objective as well as the, what must constitute the content of his proclamation in preaching. To seek continually to expose the folly of worldly wisdom and to be an instrument of God to secure unrivaled praise to him. And so I'm going to seek to unpack These verses and go as far as I can as I have time under the rubric of what must characterize a minister who seeks to glorify God. Now as we come to this exposition, I trust that those of you here tonight who have no aspirations whatsoever to the ministry as such will not from the very outset tune me out. Because this instruction is just as vital for you, so that you might know how and what to pray for in your pastors. And that and this is that for which you should be looking to hear in your pastors and to seek in their ministry. What should I pray that God would do for my pastors that they might have a fruitful, God-glorifying ministry? Well, pray for your ministers what you find in this passage before us. And if you're not a Christian, if you're here tonight and you're unconverted, don't think this passage has nothing to say to you. In fact, it has everything to say to you. Because we will be looking at the very truths which God uses exclusively to take non-Christians and to make them Christians. Therefore, there's no one here tonight who is exempted or excused from the importance of this passage. So please don't tune me out. Notice verse 1. What is the self-conscious identity of the minister who seeks to bring glory to God? When the minister wakes up in the morning and he takes this long look in the mirror, a hard look at himself. And once he emerges from the shock of the reality that a good night's sleep has done nothing, has contributed nothing by way of improvement in his appearance, something which some of us have to come to grips with day by day. But once the shock of that particular reality dissipates, He looks in the mirror and he asks himself, who are you? What is your self-conscious identity as a minister? If he doesn't have a clear answer to that question, normed and formed by Holy Scripture, he's in a heap of trouble. Because I assure you, my experience has taught me this. That there will never be any lack of people anxious to tell him who he ought to be, who he ought to see, and how he ought to see should be shaped by the consensus of the congregation. Or by the current fads of what uh, makes a man a proper minister. And I am saying with Paul, as I understand him in this passage... That if we are to exercise a ministry which brings glory to God, then we must have a self-conscious identity of our place in the will and purpose of God. So how do we draw this self-conscious identity of a minister who glorifies God from verse number 1? Notice how Paul expresses it negatively. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not. Now, I love Paul's negative, positive way of expressing himself. It's kind of like, it ain't that, but it's this. He does this continually in the New Testament. And again, in definitions, negations are vital. When you say what something is, the potential is present that people will have fuzzy ideas about it. But when you add what it is not, then the meaning of it is sharpened thereby. And this negative, positive motive is, in apostolic construction, something we find throughout the New Testament Scriptures repeatedly. Now, Paul is saying, when I came to you, I mumbled in inarticulate words. I was butchering Greek grammar, is that what he says here? Made use of convoluted sentences which only a genius could decode or decipher? Oh no. People who hide shoddy communication under the facade of these words are nothing short of lazy, if not sloppy thinkers as well as sloppy exegetes. The Corinthians would have immediately known what the Apostle Paul was saying. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech, that is, lofty superiority of word. There at Corinth, as well as at other centers of the Greco Roman world, there were schools of oratory or rhetoric who possessed their canons or their rules, if you please, of what was acceptable speech for anyone who partially claimed to be well-educated. And you would be judged with respect to your credibility in terms of their own man-made rules of what was acceptable for excellence of speech. Now, I think that excellence of speech here is referring not to the actual word spoken, but rather how you spoke the words which you used. I'm convinced that here it refers to a posture of speaking in an artificial, snotty, condescending, pompous manner. Paul's meaning for the Corinthians was, see here, whatever your rhetoricians say, or regardless of their standards for excellence of speech, for an educated, cultured man, I did not come to you, he's saying, conforming myself to the framework of your rhetorical experts. That's not my business, he says. I did not come to you in the role of an orator, that is, as one who seeks to please his audience, or to express it another way, Paul is saying, I have not come to impress you with my manner of speech that has in view some man made humanistic goal. He didn't come to speak in a user friendly manner. Perish the thought. That was not his self conscious identity. Secondly, he said, he did not come in the role of a philosopher. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom. Now that does not mean that the Apostle Paul uttered nonsense. For down in verse 6, he declares, we speak wisdom. Again, what he meant, the Corinthians, again, would have immediately understood. The philosopher is... The self-appointed all-wise one, sort of like the guy sitting on the rock with his hand to his chin. And he's observed the world and he's been seeking to penetrate the mystery of the one supreme universal. What binds all reality together, if you please. And by means of turning the wheels of his own brain, he thinks he's discovered this great unknown. Paul is saying... I did not come to you in the role of an orator, nor did I come to you in the role of a self-proclaimed philosopher. But positively, here's, here he states positively his self-conscious identity. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. My identity, he says, is that of a proclaimer. Kata angelo is the verb here. He comes with a solemn announcement and proclamation. So Paul sees himself as a proclaimer. Someone who has a word and someone who is going to bring a word. He's a proclaimer and a proclaimer of what? You'll notice in our translation, he calls it the testimony of God. Now, if you have a different translation, you may have a variant there that identifies it as the mystery of God. And there is, and I'm no expert, but there is in my present judgment something of an impasse or a gridlock with respect to the textual variant that exist here in the Greek. A number of manuscripts with a good pedigree use the word musterion, which is the word from which we get the word mystery. And a number of manuscripts with a good pedigree have that, the mystery of God. And the mystery of God is God's revelation of disclosing to us Himself in the Gospel. Paul may be saying, I came to you as a proclaimer, and what I proclaimed was not simply spun out of the stuff of my own mind, but from the revelation of Almighty God, true wisdom from the very one who spoke the universe into being out of the womb of nothing. Where the design of redemption... And the three persons of the Trinity engaged one another in covenantal commitments to accomplish that redemption. And that now, after the long ages and the fullness of time, God has sent forth His Son. And that which was hidden in the mind and the purpose of God is now accomplished in space-time history. And is now interpreted by inspired apostles. And it is presently fully known. I came, the apostle says, perhaps a proclaimer of a mystery of which God is the author. But the alternative word used in some manuscripts is translated as the testimony of God. And if you were to... Read Greek, which had been written by the transcriber. The two words in Greek look somewhat similar to one another. And you can see how perhaps there might have been a mistake on the part of a uh, copyist as they were writing them down. The word marturion for testimony looks very similar to the word mysterion, which is the word mystery. And they look similar. And this would be, if you have this translation, the testimony of God. That is the testimony which bears witness to what God has to say to men and women like you people at Corinth. He says, when I came to you, I did not come as an orator who stands on his own feet applies the trade of his accumulated skills with words that try to dazzle or amaze you. He says, that was not my purpose. Or to move you in terms of my own objective as a philosopher to benefit you with my self-perceived profound insights. No. He repudiates that identity. He says, I came as a Proclaimer, and what I proclaimed was the mystery or the testimony of God. And Paul is saying, I have no right to change my identity as a minister, then I can change my gender as a man. Then, notice in verse 2, and we have here what I'm calling the ultimate resolve of a minister who seeks to glorify God. What in the world? Does one man talk about in the same place year after year after year? Surely, you must be covering the same ground quite frequently. Well, yes and no. No in the sense that you have this comprehensive theme of Christ in Him crucified. That's what Paul had, but look at the text. He said, I decided... And the word crino there is, I made a solemn, serious judgment that issued in a settled resolve of my will. This was settled, he's saying, before I ever set foot in Corinth. In other words, when I arrived in Corinth, I didn't wet my finger and hold it up to the air to see which way the wind was blowing to decide what I was going to preach or proclaim to you. He says, no, it was all decided, ere I opened my mouth to the Corinthians. I decided, and what was the decision to preach? It was, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I am describing this as His ultimate resolve regarding not a truncated but a comprehensive theme. Now notice briefly that it focuses upon a unique person which, and it's a proclamation which also continually drew attention to a specific event. He said, I decided not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ. I decided not to know anything among you except That which would open up the wonder and the glory of who Jesus of Nazareth is. You shall call his name Jesus, Matthew said, for he shall save his people from their sins. This Jesus is the one Paul identifies in terms of the historical figure of the gospel records. I decided not to know anything among you except this unique person, Jesus Messiah, Jesus the fulfillment of all of the prophetic utterances of the Old Testament concerning that final prophet who would teach his people of whom Moses spoke, Deuteronomy 18, that final and perfect priest to whom every bleeding lamb Pointed when it was sacrificed upon a Jewish altar. However, he didn't, he didn't simply say, it's in Jesus Messiah generally, but notice what he proceeds to say, and him and him the emphasis being on him in the structure of the pronoun and him and then it's followed by what we call a perfect passive participle him as having been and remaining in that framework of being crucified i did not preach jesus christ in primarily in terms of his prophetic office paul is saying Christ declaring the mind and the will of God, though he surely did that, nor did he come primarily to focus attention upon his office as king, that he might impose his rule and his will on his people. But Paul says that he came particularly with the limelight of attention fixed on him as having been crucified. Not only did this ultimate resolve focus upon this unique person, but it also underscored emphatically and drew all the points of its proclamation to this single event. The crucifixion, the immolation, the suffering of the God-man Christ Jesus on behalf of His people and His people suffering and dying in Him. Now, granted, the cross, though it occupies center stage, it has no biblical meaning apart from what we may call the softer lights of the manger on the one hand and Joseph's empty tomb on the other hand. Now, what do do I mean by that? I mean this. You must never sever the the manger and the tomb from the proclamation of the cross. For it is only the identity of Christ in terms of who He is as the incarnate God come in the flesh, dying on the cross that has the worth and the power that it has And it's only because the Christ who died was validated and vindicated in His identity and sufficiency of His work in terms of the open and empty tomb, which was the first stage of His exaltation back to the right hand of His Father to sit upon His throne and from there to send His Spirit to empower His people. Now, we must exercise you and I great care never to permit anything else to occupy center stage. This, you see, is much of the problem with neo-Orthodox theology and sociology. Listen very carefully. In neo-Orthodox theology and sociology, its center stage floodlight is upon the Incarnation. They love to talk about the Incarnation, but they're not really thinking about the Incarnation in biblical terms because they go on to say we must be incarnational. You live in the slum, you sleep in the slum. That's where real evangelism is. I mean, you don't dare tell the slum dweller that he's dead in Adam. He's already battered and bruised and lacks a proper self-image. He's treated like scum. Forget that doctrine of total depravity telling him what a sinner he is. Just live out the incarnation. That's neo-orthodoxy. May I express it reverently. Christ could have been incarnate a million times And we would be lost and on our way to hell with no sin bearer in our place. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Beware of any shift in one's theology that would push the manger closer to front stage by degrees and degrees center stage, full floodlight, That's not what the Bible is setting forth to us. And then there are others who do they, who though they do not err in regard that way, but they take the kingship of Christ and the resurrection and the subsequent enthronement of Christ at the right hand of the Father, and they make that the touchstone and the center stage of their theology. The resurrection in Christ's present enthronement, making his crown, his kingship, front and center stage, and, and by means of emphasizing that, oh, in the, in the wrong fashion, the cross becomes blurred in all of it. We must beware of that error as well, no matter how noble it sounds. Is every thought, to use the language of Paul, to be brought in captivity to Christ? Yes, but what Christ? That Christ, Paul says, as crucified. As crucified. And the moment any of us feel uncomfortable reading this passage and we've got to scramble around to find some clever nuance to adjust it to some kind of imbalance in our own thinking, then we've gone astray. May God grant us the grace never to bend or budge from this. If we ever come to the place where we could not read a passage like this on any given Sabbath day's ministry, we must remember that we're to proclaim Christ as crucified, as well as Christ as the incarnation. We believe in his kingship, but Paul says it is Christ and him crucified that is the power of God for the salvation of sinners. For the scriptures are very clear and all of the Old Testament type and shadow all point to that event when outside the city wall of Jerusalem, a young rabbi, torn and contused to flesh, blood and spittle dripping from his beard, would be hung up to die upon a cross. What a wonderful thing to have confidence that in Christ crucified as this passage declares, is bound up the very dunamis, the very power of God to break the chains of sin. You see, dear people, we don't need half-baptized secular psychology. We only need the free, unfettered preaching of the biblical gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because in Him crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The comprehensive theme is his unique person as well as his unique work. May it ever be that whatever else could legitimately be said of our ministries, may it be said that I never heard that man step into a pulpit and preach, but that in some way I was drawn closer to Jesus Christ crucified. May it never be. Paul said that's how he lived, and that's how, why he preached that way. Galatians 2.20, isn't that what the apostle said? He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, he says, but Christ who lives in me. And you say, wait a minute, is Paul dead there or is he alive? He says, I live, but I don't live. He says, I'm crucified, but I'm living. Yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who sits enthroned for me. It's not what the passage says, is it? That would be true, but it isn't what Paul says. The Son of God who was incarnate for me? He doesn't say that. That would likewise be true. What did he say? The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul saying, I live a cross-fixed life. Now let me, in closing, give this illustration and I'm not, I would love to go through every verse in this passage. There's no way I can. But we're not to live a cross-fixed life in terms of some superstitious fix uh, sense of the Roman communion with a crucifix. That's not what I want you to envision here at all. I remember some years ago how Angela and I were invited to a cruise and uh, happened to be one of the speakers there. And we made port in a Mexican city. And we were visiting and we were looking around in the city and uh, we came across this Roman uh, church where people were going in and out. And I confess that my curiosity, it just got the best of me. And uh, so we went in and as soon as we walked in, the first thing that impressed me as we stepped inside that church was everywhere you turned your eye, there was a statue of Mary or Mary. They said it was a statue of Mary. I don't know who it was. It could have been just a statue of someone. But they claimed it was statues of Mary. And the church's name, I forget what it was, but it was our, the Church of Our Lady This or That. I should know, but I forget the name. But off to the side of the sanctuary, there was this little glass room. It was a glass room, Literally. And inside that glass room, that little room, there was a glass coffin in it with a wax figure laying in a glass coffin. And I asked an attendant nearby what the significance of that room and that coffin was. And he told me, he says, well, this church belongs to Mary. But this little room, it's for Jesus. This little room is... It belongs to Jesus. And there, this is his little room in Mary's church. Church, And there he lies in a coffin. And my response was, well, it can't be the Jesus I know. Because the Jesus I now know now sits enthroned at the right hand of God. So we don't go along. Uh, we don't envision the cross in terms of a crucifix. The cross is empty. The cross work is finished. But we preach Christ and Him crucified. Because as Paul says in this very passage, that is the power of God unto salvation. And Paul says, that's what I preach because I don't want your faith to rest in anything else but in demonstration of the Spirit and the power. May it ever be. Let us pray.